You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, editor-at-large at at The Diplomat. I'm uh, coming to you here from New York City, and I'm delighted today to be uh, joined by a special guest, a familiar name for those of you who keep up with The Diplomats Asia Defense blog. Joining me today is um, Raji Rajagopalan, a distinguished fellow and head in the Nuclear and Space Policy Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. Raji, how are you doing today? Doing good, absolutely, to the extent possible. Thank yeah. you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. It's it's really a pleasure to have you. You're someone that I've wanted to get on the show for a long time now, given uh, that you have been contributing regularly to The Diplomat. And actually, the topic yes. that I had in mind for today's discussion uh, is actually to just take stock of the U.S.-India relationship. And there's a lot of reasons that I want to do that, in particular, hmm. just reflecting on the role that the United States has been playing uh, in sort of the backdrop of this Eastern Ladakh crisis that um, you right. and me and other people have been writing about so much, of course, that at The Diplomat and elsewhere. Um, the India-China border issue. But before we get into our conversation today, I did want to just ask you to introduce yourself and just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and uh, and your uh, research interests. Sure. Uh, uh, thank you for that. And uh, I am, my name is Raji Rajagopalan. I'm a distinguished fellow and I head the Nuclear and Space Policy Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation based in Delhi. Uh, I've been here at the think tank for about uh, 14 years almost. And prior to that, I worked with the government of India, the National Security Council Secretariat for about five years. Um, currently, I contribute to the uh, Diplomats Asian Asia Defense blog, but I am also uh, a non-resident Indo-Pacific fellow at the Perth US Asia Center. Um, so yeah, happy to be part of uh, my research interests. Broadly, I focus on Indian foreign policy, the Indo-Pacific developments. And uh, like they say, there is never a dull moment in Asia. Um, so there's plenty to keep us all busy on the Asian security issues the uh, and all the major power relations in this part of the world indeed there is never a dull day in asia that's that's very well put <laughs> um so yeah let's uh let's get into this a little bit uh so listeners i'll have a link to uh, raji's last column uh, in the show notes uh, she wrote a little bit about the u.s india relationship in the context of um, not just the ongoing india china um mm. Himalayan border dispute but just uh you know um a good way to just take stock of where things are uh, or at least mm. have been left in the first half of 2020. Uh, so raji i wanted to just ask you to just uh, up the basic of your argument. You know, you make the case that U.S. support for India is really a lot more overt uh, now. Uh, And, you know, the comparison you used, which I think is the right one, is the 2017 summer uh, Doklam standoff, which was, I think, uh, the most serious recent standoff before, obviously, the Eastern Ladakh thing blew the lid off of everything. And we saw fatalities on June 15th, unfortunately. So tell us a little bit about, uh, about why you think that's the case. No, I think uh, over the last few years, U.S.-India relations have been growing from strength to strength. Uh, there have been a greater momentum. And I would say, at least in the first half of this year, it's been mostly driven by China and the pandemic. And both have helped, in a sense, uh, the coming together of India and the major Indo-Pacific powers. Uh, but the U.S. has been key. And I think the stark contrast is the Doklam crisis when the U.S. did not even come out with a standalone statement on the thing. But again, that's possible because India did not expect or want a statement of that kind because India would have assumed that it would complicate its uh, the management of the uh, conflict at that point of time with China and therefore India possibly did not seek such kind of reassurance uh, assurance from the uh, from the US side but I think the US was also relatively um, sort of uh, didn't want to get into the middle of a two uh, of two Asian uh, big powers uh, but I think come uh, in the over the last year the um, uh, there have been a lot more that's been going 
going on with China uh, pushing its uh, a, a very aggressive behavior in the Indo-Pacific region that has pushed uh, not just the neighbors, but also a use of economic coercion against uh, Australia or even pushing countries uh, such as Canada, Sweden, so on and so forth. So there's been uh, nobody who has been spared for the in the last few years in terms of the Chinese behavior. And I think that's been so today, US and India are increasingly on the same strategic page when it comes to ensuring that uh, the Asia remains uh, sort of a, a, a multilateral place, but certainly does not want to see an Asia that is going to be dominated by one single power. And I think this has been an objective on the U.S. side as well as on the Indian side. It has been reiterated several different times by Prime Minister Modi, uh, when the current foreign minister, when he was the foreign secretary, but also as the external affairs minister, uh, Dr. Jayashankar has also repeatedly talked about this as to how India wants to ensure that Asian Asia is not um, hegemonic. Asia is not dominated by one single power. And I think there in that context, I think there is uh, mm -hmm. there is a convergence of interest both between uh, India and the US. And I think that's what uh, we are seeing. And there are several other issues that come into play uh, that takes the relationship forward. But I think the uh, grand, uh, the big objective for both countries remain that Indo-Pacific region, the Asia, uh, Asia remains a non-hegemonic space in a sense, strategic mm -hmm. space. No, that's a, a, that's a really great scene setter. I want to dig into a few things you said. I mean, uh, so the most interesting point uh, initially, I think, that you made is that uh, this this notion that India may not have actually wanted public ex expressions from the United States. And I think that's important because uh, particularly in uh, Sino-Indian crises, India has generally preferred to manage things in a bilateral context without the United States really inserting itself in a big way. So during Doklam, that certainly seemed to be the case. And of course, in right. the aftermath of Doklam, we had the Wuhan and Chennai summits and this Indian attempt to really right the ship with India. Of course, the Eastern Ladakh crisis is completely different yes. in terms of magnitude. So uh, my question uh, my question there is, you know, um, from your perch in New Delhi, does it seem like something's changed now uh, in terms of how India views overt statements by the United States uh, in, in its support, right? I mean, just on um, even on Twitter, you know, Mark Esper made this comment that the U.S. Abs is absolutely. watching things in eastern Ladakh very closely, very closely. which I found interesting. That's so what's your... No, absolutely. I think the U.S. has been watching the developments very closely, even before the June 11, June 15 incident that happened that killed uh, 20 Indian Army personnel. Uh, the U.S. has been fairly loud and clear in its support for uh, support for India and the uh, kind of anti-China sentiment that played out. But I think in the post-Galvan clash with uh, with casualties, which has been a phenomena after uh, almost like four decades now, uh, there has been a big shift even in the Indian mood, at least uh, in terms of the public perception, of course, there is a lot of anger and antagonism towards China. But even if you look at the Pew survey and any other survey that have been done, um, anti-China sentiment uh, has always been there. It may not be the scale of it may be very different, but I think the uh, support uh, uh, the support for China has not always been particularly forthcoming. Uh, if you were to compare that with the uh, favorable attitude towards the US, you can see how uh, unfavorable has China been looked at. But I think today you see a bigger difference in terms of the uh, elite opinion because elite opinion has not been particularly um, sort of uh, favorable towards uh, all the way favorable to the US but certainly they had a much more nuanced approach to China a very much a balanced approach towards China that is today changing um, in fact uh, many of these senior officials who were uh, who were leading the China uh, portfolio for a very long time uh, Ambassador um, Gautam Bambawale for instance who, who has handled uh, the Minister of External Affairs but also was the ambassador to um, to China 
call for a fundamental uh, relook at the uh, at the at india's china's policy that he, and he has called for making big changes and to implement those changes at the earliest even if india has to go through some pains in terms of economic uh, and other aspects um, and the most uh, um, surprising has been for instance the former foreign secretary vijay gokhale uh, who has come out in a number of columns again uh, has a particularly antagonistic uh, approach towards china calling for again a shift in indian foreign policy uh, former uh, foreign secretary and uh, the national security advisor shushankar men and again has talked about as the, how the current situation is very different china is no more the same and how serious the situation it has become so i think there has been increasing number of calls to reassess um, india's china policy and i think we are not averse to looking at Uh, are embracing the us and other indo pacific partners uh, in in taking china on uh, head on in a sense so there is that mm-hmm. public uh, public anger has always been there or a certain amount of um, unfriendly attitude towards china but that had never translated to elite opinion but today you are seeing a change in that elite opinion on china Yeah, no, that's a uh, that's a useful way to think about this. You know, set aside the constants uh, and the and the variables. Although I do think you know public yeah. opinion has varied in some important ways, but but of course it yeah, makes a more right. permissive environment domestically. You also see the you know opposition parties, for instance, criticizing the BJP yeah. for not doing enough on China, which is also an interesting dynamic during this crisis. Absolutely. But but you know that's that's Indian politics always. It's not necessarily yeah. specific to this crisis. Um, you know that's yeah. a, 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 so. A, all of that all of that you know i um i think i agree with and makes a lot of sense um hmm. you know i wanted to ask you but so what are really you know a lot of people have been writing about what india's options are uh you know there's been sure. this discussion about what india can actually do along the border in eastern ladakh and in arunachal pradesh and a few other areas along the line of actual control that's not really sure. what i'm so interested in with uh, talking to you about um yeah. what i'm interested in is sort of at the strategic level what more should india be doing uh to really okay. um you know compete with china more effectively So uh, I'll come to that in a minute but I also wanted to add so having said that you know you have had uh, folks like ambassador bombavali and shivshankar men and talk about certain shift in indian foreign policy but there has also been very late in the day some shift uh, some uh, certain amount of pushback uh, from today for instance you had the uh, national security advisory board uh, uh, the head of the nsab ambassador ps raghavan uh, writing on the importance of the ric the russia india china trilateral so he actually makes a stronger case for um, uh, um the trilateral to be continued uh, as an important pillar in, in india's foreign policy he says that you cannot completely disengage from uh, china as well and that you need to work with them um so i do see even th- maybe there is a pushback because th- there is a sense that or oh, maybe we went a bit too much in pushing for uh, india us or india's embracement of the core uh, um quad countries and so on and so forth and therefore it appears that there is a pushback because of that uh, that aspect in a sense um so and of course uh, uh, the uh, the indian defense minister went to russia for the victory day parade uh, then there was a rsc summit the virtual um, uh, foreign ministers minute uh, meeting that happened so in a sense india is still it appears that it's still not very clear there um, seems to be a certain amount of uh, uh, waving uh, sort of a 
fluctuations in India's approach. It's not very clear as to how we are going to take forward, uh, how we are going to deal with the China challenge and how and where we place the Quad and the broader Indo-Pacific partners. On the other hand, the where, we, where you uh, have the RIC, the BRICS and the NAM. Because for a, uh, for a, after um, several years being in power, Prime Samodhi never attended the, the non-alignment moment summit, for instance. But this year, he decided to uh, take part in the virtual summit. So India does seem to be sending very confusing signals at some point in terms of where we are, uh, what is our uh, long-term approach in terms of addressing the China problem in a sense, because the China problem is here to stay. We seem to have taken at this point of time certain uh, economic and non-strategic steps in um, dealing with China, the China uh, post uh, Galvin clash. So one was the, for instance, uh, Indian government's decision um, to uh, ban the Chinese app. I think we banned about 59 and Chinese apps. So that was one step that we took. And I think it has a larger in, uh, uh, sort of a implication in terms of how we are trying to keep the Huawei and India has still not taken a decision on the 5G network. Uh, but I think it is sending a clear signal that we do not, uh, we are not going to be entertaining Chinese uh, companies, even in the in the trial process and so on and so forth. So the certain amount of and then, of course, India went about uh, amending the FDI rule to mm -hmm. uh, avoid certain opportunistic takeovers of the companies and so on and so forth, the post-COVID scenario. Um, then, of course, on the slightly on the different side, uh, you have a major naval deployment that has been happening towards the Malacca Straits um, so that we avoid any surprises on that front. Uh, but I think at this point of time, we are still not seeing very much in terms of uh, uh, India pushing back on in, in an offensive fashion. But I think it's, uh, it is difficult to do, undertake offensive operations in the mountainous areas. Um, so and also India's Indian Army's approach has been largely defensively, defensive oriented uh, military approach it has had. So it's going to be very difficult difficult to undertake an offensive operation uh, against China. Um, so if China attacks, we will fight, but um uh, uh, but I think uh, using force to redress this uh, current situation, uh, I don't see India gearing up to do that, doing that actually at this point right. of time. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, there's that there's that old, I guess, cliche at this point that, uh, you know, an elephant doesn't make sharp turns. That's often used to yeah. describe uh, India's cons yeah. consistency in foreign policy. Uh, but I think it's interesting right. that you've, um, um, you know, this uh, this idea that there is sort of a revision at the strategic elite level of yeah. of the approach towards China is, I think, quite convincing. And of course, it's happening in mm -hmm. many, many Asian countries, not just India at this point, which is quite yeah. uh, interesting yeah. as well. I want to ask you a little bit about Russia, because, uh, you know, you brought up Russia, and I think that's um, mm -hmm. that's something that makes a lot of sense. And I know in the in the U.S. discussions today about the relationship with India, um, Russia looms large. I mean, for very practical yeah. reasons, uh, primarily being the legacy defense relationship with India. Sure. If you look at the cumulative totals, uh, you know, the U.S. has been doing better as an export um, source for uh, Indian, Indian defense material in recent years. But the Cold War yeah. legacy looms large. India still needs access to Russia for maintenance, logistics for the systems that it maintains today. So, you know, cutting off ties with Russia or significantly revising that relationship is simply not practical for India. Um, and, yeah. and of of course, Russia has geopolitical preferences of its own. It's not as forward-leaning as the United States or China might be on India. But um, you sure. know, like you said, Russia would certainly prefer that India not fall entirely into the United States' sphere of influence, so to speak, in Asia. So yeah. what's, your, yeah. uh, what's your take on the U.S.-Russia relationship today? I mean, is what I said basically your understanding, or, or is there more nuance to this? 
No, Russia for India, I think it's a big puzzle because I think uh, you do not want, India does not want to see a Russia that is growing closer and closer to China uh, because having that huge Eurasian landmass come together, I think that has huge ramifications both in terms of the kind of uh, science and technological capabilities, the defense capabilities, energy security, whole range of things. Um, so the coming together of Russia and China is not uh, particularly entertained in the Indian, uh, Indian policy um, uh, narrative. But at the same time, what is that India can do to sort of uh, create a rift between? Is there, in, does India have that power and uh, sort of role to kind of play that kind of role? I don't think so. Uh, but I think India still continues to look at Russia from a very historical perspective and very emotional kind of a response to uh, looking at China, uh, looking at Russia. And I don't think that is particularly helpful. I believe India needs to be a lot more pragmatic and it's uh, decisions needs to be uh, made on national security parameters rather than historical uh, legacy issue. Um, so India has been trying to diversify its defense procurement for a few years now. And uh, uh, last uh, few years, uh, the U.S. had become the largest uh, um, trades, um, defense trade partner within, uh, with India, uh, given the large... Uh, 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 large items that we procured from from the US, uh, but and that's been put, that's not been particularly uh, liked by um, Russia. In the meantime, what the Russians are doing is has implications for India in terms of the military balance and national security. Uh, for instance, for uh, we have deployed the Sino Indian on the Sino Indian border the Su thirty MKI which we have procured from the Russians. But uh, later on, the Russians have actually now supplied the uh, Chinese with uh, Su-30, another version of it, but also the Su-35, which are much far advanced platforms in a sense. So China, Russia never used to part with the better technology to China for a very long time. But all that changed uh, sometime in 2013-14 after the Ukraine uh, crisis and so on and so forth. So today... I wouldn't believe I wouldn't place my bet on Russia, um, especially when, it, when it, if you were to look at from some of the recent examples, for instance, at the UN Security Council, China took India to the UN Security Council on the Jammu and Kashmir issue. It was France and the US which stood out for India, which called out for India, which show, had a show of hand for India. But uh, Russia took a neutral position there. Uh, but somehow India does not seem to, the Indian um, uh, political leadership, or at least the bureaucracy, does not get take the message mm -hmm. that for today, Rush, for Russia, China is far too important. And if it has to make a choice between China and India, it will always go with, uh, with China. Uh, but that's a recognition that has to uh, seep into the uh, Indian uh, political mindset, especially the bureaucracy, the MEA bureaucracy. Uh, I don't think they are still um, sort of... Uh, catching on that particular aspect of the new Russia that you are dealing with in a sense. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a fascinating uh, answer. Um, I'd love to actually dig more into that, but possibly on a separate podcast to talk all about sure. Russia. But, you know, before uh, before we close off today's discussion, I wanted to sort of also ask you about this recent speech that U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo delivered last week, uh, huh. where, among other things, um, uh, you know, obviously the speech was all about China um, and particularly the yeah. Chinese Communist Party. And yep. one of the uh, one of the prescriptions, which is not really a new idea, if you look at initiatives like the Quad huh? and other things, uh, Pompeo called for an alliance of democracies. And uh, yep. from you know, what's the what's the view from New Delhi for a uh, an aggressive American proposal like this? You know, I mean, I think there are questions about whether this would be the exact approach that, let's say, a Biden administration would choose to take. But just generally, I huh. mean, um, looking at the debate in the United States on China, how do you, uh, how does India yep. necessarily view this notion of bringing democracies together and making democracy the organizing principle? for a China containment coalition? So many a time, I think India does not really 
talk as much about it or sometimes uh, talks which are still continuing with the old rhetoric but i think india has to be judged based on the kind of uh, um, uh, actions that it has uh, sought to do and i think one of the fact that uh, the uh, the fact that the quad has been upgraded to a foreign ministerial level and that shows india's commitment to the uh, commitment to the concept of quad and the need to kind of um, sort of take it to a higher level in terms of the deliberations. But I think today, uh, post-Galvan, there is uh, a call for even moving beyond security, engaging in security dialogues and political uh, discussions to something more, maybe more in terms of coordinated joint patrols and so on and so forth. So that that's beginning to happen in the public debate in India today. And I think that's a sign of things to come. Uh, India, have, uh, uh, I think about three or four years ago, um, PACOM commander Admiral Harry Harris talked about uh, a joint patrol, uh, a joint patrol by uh, India and the U.S. And uh, immediately, then uh, Defense Minister Parikar came out and said, "We do joint exercises. We do not do joint patrols." But I think today the situation is somewhat different. I think India is slowly opening up to the idea that we may have to engage in uh, coordinated joint uh, patrols and so on and so forth, military encouragement, military operations of that kind, and engaging uh, not just democracies because democracies means you would also leave out countries like uh, Vietnam, for instance. So I think in an effort to embrace all like possible like-minded partners in the Indo-Pacific, India would, uh, certainly India would not be averse to using the term democracy, but I think India would prefer to use the term uh, like-minded partners so that it can embrace even somewhat non-democratic uh, countries into that framework so that we do have mm -hmm. a serious um, uh, a group of countries who are doing uh, willing to push, do a pushback on China. Right, and when we say like-minded, um, the the thing that these countries would be like-minded about presumably is China or, you know, preserving the regional status quo or both. I think it's going to be both. And I, uh, one aspect in this regard, and I, again, India still not had, uh, has made a decision on that is the Malabar exercise, uh, the naval exercise that uh, now includes the Japan as a, as a permanent partner, which was traditionally India-US Malabar naval exercises, now includes Japan from 2015. Uh, India is yet to take a decision whether to let uh, have Australia join us or not. Uh, this kite flying business is something sort of, you know, it's very, very difficult to understand as to why India could not make a decision and uh, come out with a statement rather than say that, yeah, we are considering that and we are making a decision. So why do you, why does India? But I think there is a greater uh, possibility of India taking some bolder decision in this regard to engage uh, um, in bringing in uh, all the like-minded partners uh, one is to one is against China, but also I think to maintaining a certain amount of status quo. Uh, but even against uh, when you talk about uh, a sort of common concerns about China, I think there are differences in approach even within the Quad countries. For instance, um, uh, for instance, for India, I think the primary concern is all about uh, the Indian Ocean uh, region and maybe the, some of the border areas and so on and so forth. But uh, for the other three partners, the uh, it's the um, Chinese influence and Chinese increasing presence in the Pacific that is. Right. But I think I don't I don't see that those as big stumbling blocks uh, in having a coordinated position on a number of uh, um, uh, on a number of important issues, uh, strategic issues in the Indo-Pacific. Terrific. Well, Raji, uh, that's all the time we have for today, unfortunately. But thank you so much for joining yeah. me on the Asia Geopolitics podcast. Thank, thank you, Ankit. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, and for our listeners, if you um, if you liked listening to Raji, definitely keep up with her column at The Diplomat. She she writes at our Asia Defense channel. Uh, her recent column was on U.S.-India relations in the context 
of the ongoing crisis with China uh, in, in Eastern Ladakh. But Raji covers a range of topics, so uh, she's certainly somebody that uh, I try to read as frequently as possible. Uh, so Raji, again, thanks so much, and we'll hope to have you back on Thank soon. You. Thank you, Ankit. Have a good day. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.